Use the chopsticks. You'll enjoy it more. Years ago, I was playing polo and working for an equine vet in Lexington, Kentucky. During the winter months, I would work for his vet clinic when it was too cold to ride. It was a priceless experience on many levels. We would spend time at yearling cells x-raying horses, measuring hearts, and simply looking at some of the finest horse flesh on earth. We drove down to the old Calder racetrack outside of Miami, Florida to measure hearts and x-ray horses at a working two-year-old sale. This was mind-blowing to me because the amount of people from all over the world there in one place shopping for their next equine champions. One farm that had horses in this sale was catering to their Japanese client and so it hired two sushi chefs to put on a feed, as it is often called in the ranching world. Anyway, this was new to me. Rice, raw fish, raw seafood, wasabi. Where was I? Had I just stepped through a wormhole and ended up somewhere else? Doc encouraged me to start slowly and work my way through some of the simple rolls before diving in too deep. I was pleasantly surprised with what I tried, but I was horrified by a couple of the things. Y'all can have all the unagi or eel that y'all want. Anyway, I remember vividly Doc telling me to use the chopsticks, and to this day it resonates with me how at that moment that simple gesture meant so much more than just eating the sushi and using the chopsticks. The horse world is full of these moments and opportunities. Learn from a new discipline, try a different bridle, ride someone else's horses. I couldn't wait to get back to Lexington and try more, eat more sushi, and use chopsticks. I think of all the places I have tried sushi and used those chopsticks, literally and figuratively. Where to next? When I wrote that post, I was remembering a time, and it was, oh, this would have been in 1999, and I had finished up a season working for a good friend of mine playing polo and training polo ponies with him outside of LaGrange, Kentucky, which was just outside of Louisville, Kentucky, and And so I had moved to Lexington to be closer to my girlfriend, who would eventually be my fiancé and eventually my wife, eventually the mother of my son, and then eventually my ex-wife. But Oh, that's a story for another day, I guess. But uh, anyway, uh, I went to work for Dr. Bill Baker, um, who owned Woodford Vet Clinic, there in Versailles, which was, you know, kind of just outside of Lexington. And, and it was an equine practice as well, a small animal, but Dr. Baker had that he had the equine side and he had some amazing vets working for him uh, at that clinic. And so I, I, I went to work for him during the winter months when it was just too cold. We weren't playing polo. We weren't working horses, really, unless we just had an absolutely gorgeous day. Um, and if we were playing any polo at all, we were playing arena polo there at the horse park. Uh, but, but that was rare in itself because typically we were pretty dang busy working at the vet clinic. Um, but when I went to work for doc at the clinic, it was just a temporary thing until the summer months came and we'd start playing polo. And so I, I played polo for him and then he would kind of invest in some younger thoroughbred horses and and I would try to get those horses started on the polo field and he'd either sell them or pawn them off on some other players and and then eventually find homes for them 
But I think he just more or less enjoyed buying and selling those thoroughbred horses that didn't make it on the track or, you know, just horses in general. Um, so that was a really, a really fun time because Dr. Baker was passionate about horses on every level and he really loved playing polo. And I liked that because no matter how bad the day ended up as far as playing polo, he was always happy at the end of that day. And it didn't matter if it was a practice game or if we were playing in a tournament and ended up getting beat or if we ended up winning. He would always, at the end of the game, we'd sit down and he'd, he'd go into telling stories about the old days of, of playing polo. And and uh, then before he'd get up and leave, he'd always hand me a $100 bill. And it didn't matter how that day ended up. He, he was just full of appreciation for, for what I was doing for him. And I felt pretty honored to work for him. And I always looked forward forward to playing polo with him. And so that was a really good experience. Um, and it was a lot of hard work. But, but I liked how he treated me with respect as a horseman and as someone who worked hard for him. And so... Anyway, during the during the winter months when when I'd work at the clinic, I wouldn't specifically work for Dr. Baker. I would work for some of the other equine vets that worked for him and that was a blast because I got to see a lot of different farms, a lot of different horses, a lot of different situations and I got to learn a lot about the industry through the eyes of horse vets who also had different points of view on things. And so I would be making farm calls with, um, with one vet and her name was Dr. McLeod. And she was kind of an old school horse vet. You know, she was very practical and she was very kind of hardened on things, but it was, it was rewarding working with her because we would go to a lot of small horse farms um, around Lexington and in some of the the out the outlying small towns around Lexington, and we would work on, you know, horses that simple families were raising. When I say simple, they weren't these massive thoroughbred farms raising you know million dollar babies. They were they were you know farmers raising one or two prospects that they could sell as yearlings at, at some of the upcoming um, yearling sales. And to watch her work with, with these owners was was interesting because she had a really good bedside manner with these horse owners. And then when we would go to some of these bigger breeding farms, her manner changed in a sense because I think she had this idea that that it was all about production, you know, and, and maybe not as much um, personal attention to the horses. It was more they were protecting their investments, not raising, you know, what some of these people might consider family members. And so she would get really stern and her, her bedside manner would change with some of these trainers and some of these farm managers. And she would kind of kind of hold them you know, accountable for some of the mistakes that they were doing raising these babies. Not that they were making these big drastic mistakes, but it was really interesting to see how she would deal 
with almost polar opposites when it came to raising these horses. And the one thing that I really liked about Dr. McLeod is she really wanted me to learn and she really wanted me to succeed. She she was as fascinated in my background with horses as I was with her background with horses because she she grew up on the the east coast and she kind of came from that that old school English background that almost had its own cowboy flair to it and and I think that's that's a really fascinating um, culture in itself and and I think it's a lot of it's disappeared on the east coast in that sense but she she would tell me stories and then she would ask me about growing up. She would ask me about mom. And the more I spent time with her, it was almost like having a second mother, <laughs> except she was she was a slightly different than mom, but but she she had this real motherly way about her, uh, uh, at least like my mom. She had a lot of characteristics of my mom. It was it was the sense of her way of showing appreciation or showing kindness or caring in a very subtle way. Like you had to be really in tune with the human emotion to pick up on her kindness. Uh, Not that she was mean, not that she was angry, but it was, it was a very cold affection, but it was still affection. And I think I had been well-versed in that growing up with my mother because it was a hard love that she raised us with. Um, but the other thing I liked about Dr. McLeod is she would almost let me make mistakes and because she wanted me to learn. And so she would let me do things and just about the time I would almost make a mistake, she would stop me and she'd correct me and she'd give me a little bit of a lesson on what I was about to do right or wrong. And most of the time it was wrong because it it was a matter the way she was teaching me to do things was by letting me do those things. She'd give me a couple pointers here and there about starting different things when it came to treating horses, but it wasn't a, she didn't hover over me until it was time to watch that precise moment where I would almost make a mistake. And, and my own mother did that a lot of times. And so I could appreciate that approach and I was kind of accustomed to it. So it was a great way to learn from her. Um, I got to hear a lot of great stories and she was also the anesthesiologist when we would do surgery on horses. And when we would do surgery on horses, I was in charge of, of helping lay these horses down for surgery. And then I was also in charge of recovering when these horses would start to wake up from anesthesia. And she taught me a lot about that because I had no idea how to get a horse back up on on its feet after it would come out of anesthesia. And so it, it was always interesting because she was really good at getting these horses to go down and, and we'd, we'd tranquilize them or sedate them and, gently lay them down in this padded room and then we would lift them up and put them on these these wheeled tables and they'd take them in for surgery and then they'd bring them out of surgery and they'd lay them back in this padded room um it was almost like being in a walk-in freezer or walk-in cooler just not cold and the walls were padded the floor was padded and, and they'd have one small light on and then there'd a camera in there where they could at least see in there when the horses were coming to and so i would sit there with those horses 
and there'd be a rough amount of time. She'd tell me how long it would be before I needed to really watch those horses. Cause as soon as those horses would swallow once, I'd have to pull that breathing tube out. And then they, that's when they were starting to wake up. And so she would, Dr. McLeod would tell me about how much time I had before I really needed to, to pay attention. And so I'd always get a little bit anxious because it seemed like a really big deal when you'd have to help these horses get back up on their feet, but it wasn't as uh, hard or scary as it might sound. So, so when I'd pull the breathing tube out, these horses would start moving around a little bit. And about the time they seemed like they, they were wanting to get close to getting up, I'd put their halter back on them. And we usually had them positioned where when they'd start to come up, I could kind of push them up against the wall and keep using the wall as as almost like extra help in there and and so when they'd start to stand up I'd usually put and and if it all worked out right I usually had my right hand on I'd be on the right side of the horse and and I would put my right hand on that halter and I'd use my left hand kind of on their neck and on their shoulder and as they'd start to come up I just kind of keep pushing them against the wall and I'd push up on their head and and slowly get them to stand up and before you knew it they were standing on all four feet and it was all it was one of those things the first time I did it uh we had been work we we did a lot of OCD surgeries on on yearling colts we'd clean up some of those joints in some of those some of those colts that they that these these farms would buy or that they'd raise and I remember the first one I did I was so nervous. It was a he was a yearling stud colt, and they had told me how much he was worth. And back then, it seemed like a lot of money, but compared to what they're selling them for now, it, it didn't seem like a, mon- a lot of money now. But I remember when I came out of there with that colt, Doctor McLeod complimented me. She she said that that it was about time they had a horseman helping these horses wake up. And that meant a lot to me because she recognized my emotion, emotional intensity, I guess, towards taking care of these horses as they woke up. Because if anybody's ever been under anesthesia and when you start to wake up, you're kind of confused. You don't know where you are or you don't know what's going on, and, and especially if you're a horse. And so that that meant a lot to me when, when she gave me that compliment. And that was – it, it was – rewarding and so when when the sale season came around and they'd start selling yearlings I worked with another vet named Dr. Neiman and she would uh we'd go to these yearling sales like at Keeneland or Phasic Tipton and we would x-ray yearlings and we do all the x-rays it was either 32 or 36 plates I don't I don't remember exactly what it was but but we would we'd get a list in the morning. So we'd show up at Keeneland and we'd have a list of horses that we needed to x-ray. And so we had our sales catalogs and we'd go from barn to barn and we'd shoot all these yearlings. And I'd have to carry around these plates and carry around the x-ray machine. And and we'd go and do all these horses. And they were usually really good about it because thoroughbred horses are handled pretty much from the day they're born. So they're they're pretty broke on the ground. So they didn't mind us, you know, moving all these x-ray plates around. And, and then we'd, we'd go get all the films developed. And this was back, you know, when we still had to use films. And I'd 
have these canvas satchels or sacks, you know, full of these plates. And in any way, we'd we'd go get all those films developed, and then we'd go back and we'd keep X-raying horses. And and it was really cool to see the grooms, the trainers, the managers, how well things were run, how efficient things were, how clean things were, and how knowledgeable every person involved with handling those horses were. They were they were all horsemen in their own right, even if they had never even ridden a horse. They understood horses so well. It was really fascinating to see that. And so we walked a lot of miles and, and I carried a lot of x-ray plates with me and, and it was they were long days but they were really fun days and and so the next thing that we that we would do is we were measuring the horses hearts with uh with the ultrasound and i don't know you know back then you know how new it was or if it's something that people had thought about doing for a long time but but dr neiman would ultrasound these horses hearts and then we would measure the chambers to see the sizes and there was a correlation between, you know, the 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 size of the chambers and what would make these horses strong runners to make them winning runners. And and so it was a really interesting uh, science to to see, to experience, and to learn. Um, and we did piles of horses there at those sales, and it, it was always really cool to see the the science behind that and so that was that was something you know neat to learn and and Dr. Neiman she was a young vet and she was a hard worker and and so her and I got along really well um and she was kind of more interested in the fact that I was from Texas and that that I played polo and and I was a little bit different than than most of the the people she was around in in the third in the thoroughbred race industry and she was also the first person to introduce me to the music of nick drake and she always had it playing in the in the truck and the first time i heard his music i i completely fell in love with it and it seemed to be the only thing that she would ever be playing and i didn't mind i it it made me a big fan of nick drake music um and and people will just have to look him up if they don't know who he is and hopefully everybody will enjoy his music but uh i think that it was kind of an interesting thing uh that i had to deal with because dr baker liked that i was from texas that i had worked for some great horsemen and, and polo players and he liked that i had this whole image of being a cowboy but also a polo player um but when I worked for his vet clinic, I couldn't wear my cowboy hat and he didn't want me wearing jeans when we would either work at the clinic or go go to the these yearling sales. So I had to get real comfortable with wearing khaki khakis or khaki pants and, you know, a long sleeve uh, shirt with the vet logo on it. But I couldn't wear my hat. And so I had to wear a, a, a cap a whole lot of a lot of the time and the only part of me that was probably recognizable was was i kept my my red wing brogans or my 2023s which in kentucky they called them tobacco boots and and here we call them brogans and there's probably a lot of other names 
for those red wings, but they don't even make them anymore. They're, they've kind of become rare. And, uh, there's a whole nother story about a pair of them I bought last year, um, or actually this year in Turkey. But so I had to get comfortable with wearing khakis and not carrying the image of a, of a Texas cowboy or a Texas horseman. And so that was, that was a little bit of getting used to, but, but I got used to it. Um, and so the time came for us to, uh, we were going to go down to the old Calder racetrack outside of Miami. It was kind of in between Fort Lauderdale and Miami. If I remember right, I'm, I'm probably got that a little bit wrong, but it were, they had a working two-year-old sale down there and, uh, we were going to go x-ray horses and we were going to measure some hearts. And so they wanted me to drive one of the trucks down there with, with all of the equipment in it. And I had planned to go a day early so I could stop off in Gulfstream and see friends of mine at the polo club that I hadn't seen in a, in a long while. And so I'd gotten up really early one morning and drove down to, to South Florida, down to Gulfstream, and I pulled into the polo club and drove over to the barn where my my friends were working. And I had gotten there just in time to, to take sets out with them. Um, and so they were going to take some horses out there, you know, ride one and lead three or lead four, and take them around the track there at the club. And, and then they were going to go, they had some chuckers to play over at uh, the old Tranquilo uh, polo club which was kind of on the outskirts of of wellington you drove through town and kind of went out out a little bit to these polo fields but we we i got there in time to to saddle up and go ride with them and then we went over where they were going to play play a practice game and, and they actually asked me if i wanted to play a couple of horses and so that was a lot of fun because i you know during the winter in kentucky we weren't really getting to play especially you know we weren't playing on the grass at all so it was fun to play um, to play a couple of chuckers, and then I also got to watch a couple of horses play that that I had had a hand in training. Uh, they were horses that I had gotten to play and gotten to kind of more or less finish uh, for other for other players and horsemen that I worked for, and to see those horses playing and to see them still playing well was very validating for me and and I was really excited about that. So it, it, that was that was something that it was worth the the stop in Gulfstream um to see my friends but to also see to see my horses. And so that night we had gone out to dinner and we stayed out really late that night and I had to get up early that next morning to to drive down to the racetrack so we could start working on horses. And I got up that morning and I was pretty wore out. Uh, I hadn't really stayed out in a long time and, and uh, probably drank a couple too many beers and was a little bit hungover, but made it down to the track. And luckily that day we, we had a short list of horses uh, to x-ray. And so it made the day go by fairly quickly. And by the, I don't know, it was probably... It was sometime late afternoon. We were done, so we went to an early dinner. Had some amazing seafood. I don't. I, I at that time, I that was probably the best seafood I had ever eaten. And it was at this little tiny. It almost looked like a gas station where we where we ate, but it was amazing. And it was one of Doc's favorite places to go eat. 
So the next morning we got up early and started our day and, and, uh, Dr. Neiman and I had, uh, had a pretty good list of horses to start x-raying and measuring and, and Dr. Baker, I don't, he went off, um, he was probably more or less watching all those two-year-olds breeze around the track and, and doing some other, other things. So he kind of would come check on us and then go off and do other things. And around lunchtime, we, we made it over to this one shed row where this farm was catering to their Japanese clients. And they had hired these two sushi chefs uh, to to sit there and just, you know, kind of, it was kind of like being in a sushi restaurant, I guess you kind of, they were making things and setting them out and people were getting what they wanted to eat. And, and I had no clue what was going on. Um, which is funny thinking about it. Um, you know, in, in the cowboy and ranching world, we're, we're not really accustomed to eating sushi or, or looking for the next place to go eat sushi. But in the horse industry itself, it seems to be fairly regular and and the fact that i had been in polo as long as i had and had still never eaten sushi was was a little bit embarrassing but that's what it was and so i remember doc he he said start out you know try this and try this and and one of those chefs had recognized that i was pretty green to all of this you know and and so he kind of started me off um slowly he would he would take some of that rice and he would he would kind of mash it up in the palm of his hand and then he would roll it into these perfectly round little balls and he would set them down and I'd pick one up and eat it and I was, well it's just rice it's not bad and he did those a couple times and then he he took some of uh he made another ball and then he wrapped it in nori which is you know if anybody eats sushi it's you know the it's kind of dark green edible seaweed and he he took a little bit of that and wrapped it around that rice and handed it or set it down and I picked it up and ate it and then he made another one and I stuck my hand out and he just plopped it right down in my hand and he had this smile on on his face because I think he he thought he was probably doing a good thing and he was converting me or or helping me learn all about eating sushi and so then uh then he he snuck in a piece of tuna in one so he he made basically a little um you know any i don't know people might not recognize it but he took a little piece of tuna and he surrounded it with rice and then wrapped it with that nori set it down and i picked it up and ate it and it was really good and it it didn't occur to me at the time that i was eating raw fish and then i i ate another one and and i put it you know i we had a uh, these little plates there and, and, but they're, they, so he started kind of just making a couple different ones and, and the fish was a couple different colors. There was tuna and then there was, I don't know, I, I honestly, I couldn't tell you what the other was, but, but at one point, um, they had, a oh gosh, I'm trying to think what it was. Um, it was kind of a salad. I don't, it was, it may be like seaweed salad or something like that, but, but Doc said, you know, you know, try that. And then he said, use the chopsticks. You'll enjoy it more. Because I, I thought, you know, I was sitting there looking for a fork or something to eat it with. And, and chopsticks, you know, there's an art to using them efficiently or proficiently, however you want to look at it. And, and I was never that good at it. And so I had to practice for a minute. But, but when Doc suggested using the chopsticks, it wasn't – it. 
it wasn't like correcting me and how to do things. It wasn't this, you know, you have bad manners or you don't know what you're doing. Do this, listen to me. There was a little bit more to it. I think it was, it was this idea of embracing what I was doing, you know, kind of observing and diving into another culture um, without sounding too dramatic and and because I think there was this he had this sort of happiness because I was not I wasn't hesitating to try everything there and he knew where I'd come from he he knew people I'd worked for and so I felt like he was sort of I was kind of that son that he was proud of you know and and, and he had this big smile on his face and so anyway, that the one chef made a he made one roll and it had eel in it. And I remember when I stuck that in my mouth, it was one of the worst things I'd ever tasted in my life. And just the texture of it was so bad. And all I wanted to do was spit it out. But I kind of knew better because I didn't want to be rude. And, and so I had to kind of power through that one. And that was the first and last time I, I ever ate eel. Um, but... It it was a really cool experience because it kind of opened me up to a whole, uh, like another mindset, so to speak. And because here I was, I was at a, at a horse sale where they're selling these, these two-year-old racehorses to people from all over the world. You know, it wasn't just the Japanese, which I was fascinated with with their entourage and how they did things. But there was, there was people from all over the world and they were spending massive amounts of money buying these horses. And I didn't, you know, I I was still fairly naive in the, in the wealth of the world and, and what, what people spend in order to have the best horses in the world. Um, and, and it was, I was fascinated by that, but I was, it, I left there going back to Lexington with this, this whole new, um, layer of, of curiosity for cultures and for experiencing new things. And so when I got back to Lexington, I remember telling Reagan all about it and and she was actually really surprised that I had never had sushi. And then she was also really surprised that she never offered to go eat sushi or to take me somewhere and eat sushi. So the first thing we did is we found a a place to go eat sushi, but it, it was a like a hibachi grill, and they also had sushi there. So it was a different experience, obviously, than what I had experienced in Florida. But it it was good, but it it didn't feel I didn't feel like we had stepped into another place. You know, it, it felt very modern, and so. We eventually found this little hole in the wall uh, place in downtown Lexington, and I felt like it wasn't any bigger than my leather shop, you know, here on the ranch. And you walk in, and there was a couple little tables on the left and right side, but you walked straight back to this little bar that was the width of the place itself, and you sat down on these little stools, and and basically what i had learned was let the chef make you what he wants to make you you know trust in him trust his opinion and if it's something you don't like 
he's going to know it. But if it's something you do like, he might not make it again either. He might make you something else. It's like he, it was like this, the chef would push your limits. And I remember, you know, Reagan being surprised that I could use the chopsticks like I did. Um, but there was also a point where using our fingers was better, you know, so it was this, this idea of balancing using the chopsticks and embracing what, what, uh, Dr. Baker had told me. And then also just, using your fingers. Cause I, I, anybody that knows me, I don't like to eat with my hands. Um, but it was a really cool kind of experience. And that place was like stepping into a different world. It felt like you were, you know, in a, in Japan or you were just in a completely different world in itself. It, it, and that's what I, I really almost began wanting to search for anytime I was somewhere else uh, looking for somewhere to eat sushi or any kind of food that we were not accustomed to. And so that was, that was a really fascinating time. And and so basically, you know, when, when I wrote this post about using the chopsticks, it was, it was more or less the idea of trusting in other people and listening to them and experiencing new things. And then, and then also, you know, letting, the chef guide you or guide me along the way, along with everyone else that was helping me in that situation. Because even though it was just food, you, you still seek some advice and some help from, from those, you know, that, that know more about it. And, and so I, I created this mindset or, or developed this mindset that, that anywhere I went, you know, I would search for that sushi place. You know, you, you would either, ask somebody or listen to a conversation and it it was the idea of exploring uh but i based it all off on you know on on my sushi experience because it seems so out of the the norm or out of the ordinary for the ranching and cowboy culture uh because they think it's so odd to eat raw things wrapped in rice that that comes that kind of comes from another country uh, uh being japan um but but i i found it to be a, just a really cool way to to make an excuse to explore anything that we do and so you know i kind of talked in this post you know about learning a new discipline trying different bridles and riding someone else's horses it's kind of that same idea of, you know, of, you know, somebody walks that horse in front of you and says, here, ride this horse. It's no different than that chef setting down a, a roll in front of you and saying, try this. Or someone saying, hey, why don't you try this bridle? That's no different than, than Doc saying, hey, use the chopsticks, you'll enjoy it more. Or going to different places and exploring different sushi restaurants is no different than riding someone else's horses. You know, there's so much we can learn and so much we can add to what we do and what we know that there's great value in all of that. And so that was a really, what I took away from that experience only adds to my experience with horses. And so my mindset became, you know, to keep an open mind with everything that everyone does with horses, because it, it seems to be 
in some of our horse industries, it's very shut off. It's very closed minded and it's, you know, either their way or the highway. And, and I'd like to think that, that, that I've developed a lot of, of different layers and techniques to train in horses because I've had the experiences of working with trainers in other disciplines and living all over the country and, and being around people from all over the world. And, and so I, I, I put great value into that, you know, and, and so it, it's a matter of, you know, I guess I could compare it to, you know, I know that I can train a polo pony. I know that I can play polo and I know that I can do a lot of things with horses, but knowing the difference in how to train a polo pony versus a reined cow horse, you know, they're going to do things similarly, but not the same. You know, it, you know, we do things at speed and polo and we have to do things in a sort of bottled up uh, way with, with our rain cow horses, you know, what, a what, a you know, but our goal is to make a, is to train a polo pony to do those things beautifully on a polo field and for a rain cow horse to do those things beautifully in an arena. And, you know, being able to know the difference and to recognize in what you're doing and what you need to improve on or what you need to change when you're working those horses it's it's not a matter of retraining yourself it's a matter of learning a new way of training and adding that to your uh to your your knowledge and experience with training horses because you can always apply a little bit of any of those disciplines to what you're doing you know there's value in even the smallest detail of training one style of horse that you can add to training another style of horse and still get the best end results you can. And so that's, I took a lot of pride in that. And it all goes back to this experience of trying sushi. And so kind of as I record this podcast, um, I'm actually leaving for Las Vegas uh, this morning. I'm stepping out of my comfort zone uh, for the last time for the year. Um, and it's something that I've been real hesitant about and real reluctant to commit to. Um, over all of these years, probably 85% of the people I, I know have been to Vegas at some point in their life. And a lot of them obviously go this time of year for the NFR, the National Finals Rodeo. And then I have friends that just go for different occasions, but they always say you need to experience it once. And I've, I've just never wanted to. Um, and, and I couldn't really give you the exact reason why, even though I know that the bright lights and the noises and the crowds are not something I'm super excited about. But, you know, I have to step outside of my comfort zone and enjoy the experience and and I had made up my mind last April, this this past April, that, that I was going to go. A good friend of mine basically said, use the chopsticks. And so I had made up my mind then that I'd go to Vegas this year. And as the year went on, I'd, I stayed busy all year. And by November, I was pretty worn out. And I was looking for any excuse to not go to Vegas. And last week I had made up my mind that I wasn't going to go, but I didn't feel right. You know, I felt like I was letting myself down, but letting 
everybody down that has encouraged me throughout my life to do things, to step outside of that comfort zone and to experience something new. Because no matter what, even though Las Vegas is in the United States, it's a whole nother world in itself. It, it's, it's a, it's a crazy world. And so, um, at short notice, I, I was asked again, I was invited to come. And I knew at that moment, that was, that was that sushi chef setting down that last good roll to eat before he wasn't making anymore. And I decided at that moment that I needed to go. So I booked a plane ticket and started planning within 24 hours basically i had a plane ticket in a hotel room and i'm on my way to san antonio here in about 30 minutes and i'll be in vegas by this afternoon but i i in a sense what it is going to vegas is a big deal but it's also not a big deal but for me it's honoring all of the experiences that I have had and honoring all of the encouragement from all of the good friends and mentors and people from all over the world that have helped me out over the years, that have encouraged me to do things and to just embrace life. And like I've said before, you know, one of the best things we can do is never say no. You know, it, it's I think it was, you know, uh, Rick Rubin that said, you know, never say no to a good idea, but always say no to a bad idea. And I couldn't really find a reason to to think that this was a bad idea. So, of course, I needed to say yes. And so I'm thankful for the all, all of the encouragement to, to do things and to step outside of my comfort zone. And I'm also very grateful for the invitations to come to Vegas this year. So, um and it was also a little bit hard to explain, but, you know, every year I look back on the year um, in a sense that, that I try to to write down all of those memorable moments and something that maybe stood out for the entire year. You know, in last year I had talked about being in Amarillo was such a great experience. I had made new friends. I was inspired by a lot of the things that that happened over that that weekend in Amarillo and this year it wasn't quite the same and maybe it shouldn't have been the same, but, and, and even though I had standout moments this year with my horses and even breaking my arm a couple of weeks ago, I, I was still lacking something. There was something that, that I couldn't write home about, so to speak. And, and I, I think that, that this is the universe again telling me look pack your bags go to vegas have a good time remember everything that happens write it down share it with the world so i i have to listen to to the universe when she when she gives me some good advice and so that's probably a a good way to to explain it and and so hopefully uh I find a really good sushi place to eat at in Vegas while I'm there. Surely there is one. I, I've already had a couple of suggestions of places to go, but um, I'll make the time to find a good place to eat sushi and make a good point to use those chopsticks in everything I do while I'm there over the next five days or so. So um, I'm going to wrap it up here. I need to finish packing and get loaded up and head to San Antonio. Uh, but once again, I want to thank everybody for 
listening to this podcast. And I can't say enough about how grateful I am for everyone that shares my podcast, everyone that listens to it. And when someone walks up to me and they tell me I'm doing a good thing and and that they're taking things away from my podcast that help them, that makes it all worthwhile. Uh, I, I still am a little bit in shock that people want to hear what I have to say, and I'm still working on, on finding my voice, and I struggle a little bit with it. But I'm always looking to make it better, and I'm always looking to make it right. And so thanks to everyone that listens and for the effort that everyone puts in to share it. And uh, so we'll um, we'll come back with another one. Hopefully I got some good stories to tell from Vegas. So uh, once again, just remember there's always something to chase. Adios.